And I usually like to start before, before time so that at the dot we begin the material. Um, I'm not a pastor or a preacher. I am an emergency room doc. Grew up in India, which is uh, a land of tremendous diversity. Culture, food, dress, language, religion too. India has the largest Hindu population in the world, over 800 million. It has about the second or third largest Muslim population in the world. In fact, we have more Muslims in India than many of the Muslim countries themselves. Buddhism was born, nurtured, cradled in uh, India. Christianity came to India at the first generation of Christianity. You go down to the lower parts of the Indian Peninsula, you can still see some uh, um, monuments to commemorate the landing there of St. Thomas. In fact, there's a mountain called St. Thomas's Mount. And then there's Sikhism, Jainism, and a whole host of the other religions. So to grow up in that atmosphere, in that crucible, is really uh, is a challenge. Lots of questions I had. And I asked them, and after a few years, went on a journey. And I'm going to describe to you that journey, not exactly how it happened, but after about 20 years, I put all that stuff into a kind of a reasonable step-by-step -step approach, and that's what I'm going to present to you today and tomorrow. Um, it took me that long because I was, I was a doctor, and so in my spare time, what I did was ask a lot of people questions. And I happened to work in quite a few different hospitals in India, so at some places, I was close to a Hindu shrine. At other places, I was close to a Muslim mosque. I worked way up in the foothills of the Himalayas, uh, not very far from Dharamsala, which is the uh, place that the Indian government gave the Dalai Lama, so his monks would come over to be treated, and then we could have a chat. I worked sometime in the town of Jalandhar, which is not very far from Amritsar, where the golden temple of the Sikhs are. So, you know, with all these interactions, questions naturally arose. And I began asking people, ordinary people, as well as leaders, pastors, bishops, priests, monks, uh, mullahs, imams. And it's amazing how when you begin to ask the real questions, how few of them can ever answer you back. And that's what set me on my journey. So we're just about 9.30, so let's start. Some of you would like to take notes, and that's fine. You can take notes, but remember, I'll be going pretty rapidly because of the amount of material there is. It's amazing how much there is. People think that you must just rely on somebody else's words and just by, you know, belief and faith. No. There is enough of solid evidence. And that's what I'd like to show you during these, uh, uh, this seminar. And uh, for those who will take notes, go ahead and try if you can. Keep up with me. If not, 
I have a book that's just come off the press last week. Everything that's up here is in the book. So I, because I'm a one-man ministry, and the ministry is sustained by these finances, I'll have to charge for the books, okay? But they're all there. The whole seminar stuff is in the books. So if you want to take notes, fine. If you want to just sit back and listen, and if you have a little, you know, something in your purses, then that's fine. You can get the books. So let's start. Allahu Akbar. That is the Muslim cleric, the mullah, or the imam. He wants to call the faithful to salat, prayer. Allah is the proper name of God in Arabic. God with a capital G. Ho Akbar is great. Shema Israel. Wow. Something is not working. Here we go. Allah Hu Akbar. Allah is the proper name of God in Arabic. Hu Akbar is great. Shema Israel says the Jewish rabbi. Shema, here. Israel, two words, a prince of God, Jehovah. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai accord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Namo Amitabh, that is the Buddhist monk. He spins his prayer wheel. Namo, name. Amitabha, the name of a bodhisattva. Who is a bodhisattva? Somebody who has reached the penultimate state of existence just before becoming a Buddha himself. And today, Amitabha is the presider of a paradise known as the Pure Land Paradise. If you state his, repeat his name often enough, you will get merit and might be whisked away to that paradise. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. This is the Christian preacher, the bishop, the pastor, and the name he refers to is Yeshua bin Maryam, Jesus, the son of Mary, also called the Christ, translated the Messiah. The meaning of the Messiah is the anointed one. Another one of his names was Emmanuel, El God, Manu is man, God with man. Deep in the Indian Peninsula, from where I come from, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, that's the guru, which is Shishyas, just as they reach the goal of their pilgrimage, a temple. Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Hare Ram, Hare Krishna, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare is obeisance, Rama is the seventh avatar or incarnate of the god Vishnu, the preserver of the universe. And Krishna, is the eighth incarnate of the god Vishnu. So on this side is this religious world, all diverse and varied. But there's a fence. And on the other side of the fence stands the rank skeptic, the avowed atheist. He looks over at this religious field and with a rise condescending smile, he says, these poor deluded souls sipping at the opium of the masses. That is what Karl Marx called religion. Opium of the masses, you guys don't know how to face the reality of life. It is tough, it is painful, there's suffering there. 
And when you can't face it, then you go run off and nibble and chew a little bit on these empty promises of some utopia out there, some God who's going to give you something more than you have. There is no God. There is no afterlife. There is no heaven, nothing. Life is hopeless. Face the reality. Oh, so there is some reality that nobody else knows? Maybe, maybe not. So I looked at one of the authors who stated why he would not want to be a believer. A brilliant British atheistic philosopher, Bertrand Russell. Listen to what he said. It is only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair that the soul's habitation can henceforth be safely built. How can despair form a firm foundation? How can unyielding despair ever be safe? Quentin Smith, author of, co-author actually, of uh, theism, atheism and the Big Bang cosmology, this is what he said. He was even more blunt. The only reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. So my first question was, where did he get such a big sweeping statement from? Was it a ba what, is, what is it based on? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got it? It is just a private personal opinion. There is no way anybody can establish this by any chance whatsoever. But nothingness is not an easy principle to live by. It's a very hard, exacting principle. You try it and see. You cannot live as if there is nothing. And that is why Jean-Paul Sartre, that French thinker and philosopher, after he had outlined all his arguments as to why atheism is the way to live, step by step, argument on an argument, and he placed it all out there and said, look, I showed you. The best way to live is live like an atheist. But one question remains, he said, why I have not committed suicide yet? You know, some of us might smile, but for him it was no smiling matter. He was dead serious. And I'll tell you why he was dead serious. He was a brilliant thinker. There was another brilliant thinker, Albert Camus. He was a Nobel Prize winner. That means the possibly the highest that he could have possibly reached in his, in his career or in his field. He said the final philosophical question is the question of suicide. And he not only said that, he went to its hopeless end and did it. So, the nothingness of Quentin Smith will pull you to the despair of Bertrand Russell. And if that is not held, he'll take you to the precipice of Jean-Paul Sartre and of Albert Camus. But just because somebody wanted to commit suicide does not make them wrong. Because I saw many people who believed in God, pious people, righteous people, who also wanted to commit suicide. Have you seen them? Yeah, despaired, depressed. They also wanted to commit suicide. Therefore, the question still has not been answered. Is it all that religious field out there, or is it this atheistic way to live? Which one is it? In other words, the basic question, is there a God in existence? How will I know? 
That's the question we're going to look at. I didn't start out with that question. I started out by asking, is it the Hindus or Muslims or Christians or Buddhists or who? But while I asked that question, I began the delve, I realized, what's the point of looking for a named religion if there's no God at all? What's the use of looking for a river or a lake if, the, if water itself, its existence is in question? And so, before we start that question, we must ask ourselves what kind of an attitude we bring to the search. Number one, our mental attitude, and the other one is we create an atmosphere. If you don't do these two, you get all lost. I tried it in the beginning and I got all muddied up and, and got stuck. And so the first thing is our mental attitude. What do I mean by a mental attitude? Here it is. All of us, and I don't care who it is, have three attitudes in our minds at any given time. And we got all three and can flip from one to the other and so smoothly we don't know which one we are using at which time. The three attitudes that we have, and these are not people, these are attitudes. A skeptic, a believer, inquirer. For example, a skeptic dismisses the report prior to thorough investigation. A believer accepts the report prior to thorough investigation. An inquirer holds verdict till investigation is done. Another set of statements. A skeptic focuses on the question to the exclusion of the evidence. A believer focuses on the evidence to the exclusion of the question. An inquirer focuses on the weight of evidence. And yet another set. Skeptic disbelieves in the face of reasonable evidence. A believer believes in the face of big questions. An inquirer accepts reasonable evidence even if some questions remain for the simple reason that questions will always remain. There is not a single human who can ever finally stand on any pedestal whatsoever and say, I've got it all. It's impossible. Our brains and our minds are simply too small. Truth with a capital T is just too big. And so questions will remain. So let me ask you. We're going to spend a few hours today and tomorrow, possibly. What would you like to use during our seminar here? The attitude of an inquirer. Okay, it's okay. You can, you can answer me back. It's fine. The attitude of an inquirer. So we stop becoming, we stop being a believer. Stop being a skeptic. So leave your religious stuff outside that door. Here we'll just be ordinary people. With no loyalty, with no axe to grind, nothing to defend. Just inquire. Are you with me? Amen. Good. How about creating an atmosphere? We need four things and all four are absolutely important. You can't, you can't miss even one. If you miss one, you're going to block your own way. Number one is humility. It is the top. If ever you puff up your chest and say, I know, then you're not going to know the next thing. So humility is the smallness you feel when you're standing before the vastness, the grandeur, and the majesty of truth. Remember, truth with a capital T is huge. It is big. Do not ever try to puff up your chest against that. You get blown away. And if you are being blown away, then go ahead and just be humble and teachable. For if you are not, you block yourself. What about honesty? Honesty, you know, is an extreme short supply. This is what I found in my 20 years of talking to people. 
Everyone likes to be known as those who have some bit of knowledge. Nobody likes to show themselves ignorant. And so when you begin asking questions, they immediately start answering right away as if they know it all. And then at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, you ask them, really? Do you really know what you're talking about? I don't know, comes the honest answer. Honesty is so much a part of us that I realized I had to give it a very tough definition which would stand the test. And here's one definition. Honesty is the willingness to give credit to a point or argument, no matter who brings it up, even if that acknowledgement might destroy my previous standing. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be honest? You know what I call it in my search after a few months? I call it the wow factor. Wow. In other words, if something impresses you, it doesn't matter from where it came. If you're honest, you must say, wow. Are you going to do that? Yeah. I'll promise you that during this seminar, there'll be many times you will look at stuff and you say, wow, if you are honest. So we acknowledge and confess that we want to be honest. And if it is not so good, you can twist your mouth and say, mm, I don't know. And if it's really bad, say it's lousy. But be honest. And if it's something good, say, wow. You don't have to say amen because that is Christian. Okay? You can say great or not so great or I agree or ah, that's useless or whatever it is. But be honest about your response to what we go through. Calmness, boy. Religion has its deepest roots in our emotions. Did you know that? You try to touch that part and I will erupt. I will defend it to its death. Anybody outside? Come on, there's place. There's place. There's place up here. Some out there. We've got to be calm. If you are not calm, then judgment and reason will fly out of the window. The willingness to keep my volatile emotions in check because of humility and honesty. In other words, if you are humble and you are honest, then you can remain calm because you have already shed away everything. There's nothing to defend. Respect. Respect is not agreement. Respect is not even admiration. Respect is simply allowing for the other whatever rights we feel is our due. In other words, if he or she wants to do a search, let him or her do it their way. But we respect them because you want them to respect your search and your conclusion. Even if it's diametrically opposite, that's okay. Be able to honestly, respectfully disagree is a virtue. You don't have to agree. To respect somebody, just respect their right to do it their way. How do we apply this really in practical terms? Uh, is it okay if I ask you all to stand up? Because we need some oxygen in our brains. All right, we'll take a deep breath. You know, it's called the 224 um, method. 224, take a deep breath for two counts, hold it for two counts, and let it go for four counts. Are you with me? Take a deep breath. One, two, hold, one, two, let go. One, two, three, four, once again. 
Take a deep breath. One, two, hold. One, two, let go. One, two, three, four. I can see the oxygen level coming up, just getting into your brain just enough. One more time. Take a deep breath. One, two, hold. One, two, let go. One, two, three, four. Okay, the reason I asked you to stand was not to take a deep breath to have your oxygen in your brains, although that's good, but let's do one ritual. I would like you to draw an imaginary circle around your feet. Okay, imaginary circle. Now this is what that circle is. The circle is your religion, your philosophy, the principles that now guide you. Now please step out of that. Okay, now you're joining me on the street. We are ordinary people. Now you can sit down. We are not Hindus, we are not Muslims, we are not Buddhists, we are not Christians inside this room. Outside that, you can put on your coat and walk. But here, we are just ordinary people asking questions that we hope somebody will answer. Even if they don't answer, at least there must be some reasonable response to our question. Okay? Now with that, let's go to what I call the great divide. Option A, God is non-existent, fictitious. Option B, God is relevant, God is factual. Let me mention again to those of you who are taking notes, you can go ahead and take notes, but if you want to sit back and listen, you may, because all that I'm showing on the screen are in my book. So you can have it at, at maybe at the end of the seminar or even at the end of this session. That's the question. That, uh, these are the two options. There is not a third option. To the question, is there a God in existence? There, is, there are only two. There is no God in existence. There is a God in existence. The people who say, I don't know, is not an answer. It's, it's maybe a confession, maybe there's not enough information, or they just don't know enough. But to that question, there is, on, there is only two answers. Now, why is that question going on and on for centuries? Nobody seems to kind of settle it. Do you know why? Because the way we approach it. We approach it by two columns of argument. Mine and yours and I pile up the evidence for my stand, and I poke holes in your argument. And the other person does exactly the same. He piles up an argument for his own side and pokes holes on the other. The fact is, there is enough of arguments on both sides, there is enough of holes on both sides to do it forever and ever. So now, where are we? We do have a way out. Remember, one of the attitudes of an inquirer is look for the weight of evidence? Yes. yes. We've got to look for the weight of evidence because there's no such thing as absolute proof in our existence. Not for big questions like this. We look for the weight of evidence. And if we look for the weight of evidence, then we just might find it. But first, how come there are two sides? Look at these statements here and watch the word precisely. Richard Dawkins states this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there's at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. A statement on the opposite side and watch the word precisely there also. The seemingly arbitrary and unrelated constants in physics have one strange thing in common. These are precisely the values you need if you want to have a universe capable of producing life 
there is no good reason for an intelligent person to embrace the illusion of atheism or agnosticism. Can you see the word precisely? They are referring to facts which are open to everyone, precise facts and coming to a conclusion that is diametrically opposite one to another. So I drew up what is called the pan process. Pan means going across the Pan-American games. Pan also means the process of sifting, panning for gold. You sift, move away the valuable from the not so valuable. Pan also happens to be the first three letters of my family name. <laughs> so in the pan process, which kept me in the, in the mode of inquiry, has four columns, not just two. In other words, you step away from the debate and look at both the options and make columns. Arguments for A, A which states there is no God in existence, and then arguments against B which states that there is a God in existence. Then you go to the other side, arguments for the statement that there is a God in existence, and arguments against the statement that there is no God in existence. Let's do the pan process and see what happens. Option A, God is non-existent. What are the arguments for such a statement? None. Boy, how can you say there's no arguments? You know why? Because the statement is in the negative. A negative statement is valid only when you have exhausted all the possibilities. Let me give you an example. If there are 10,000 lakes here in the United States, and I say there is no lake by the name of Chargogagog, Manchaugagog, Chaubanagan, Gamaug. How many lakes do you think I should be familiar with? Oh. Will 9,999 do? No. By the way, Chargogagog, Manchaugagog, Chaubanagan, Gamaug is a real name of a real lake. It is up in Upper Massachusetts, since the Native American language, it says, I fish on my side of the lake, and you fish on your side, and nobody fishes in between. <laughs> I just throw it in for trivia. That's the longest name, by the way, in the United States, the longest name of a place. Anyway, I need to be familiar with all 10,000 lakes. I need to be familiar with all of you for me to stand up and say there is nobody in this room by the name of Mr. Brown, right? I should know all your names. Now let's take that with just one aspect of the God. If there is a God, he should be somewhere. There should be a location. Are we okay with that? If there is somebody living like that, there should be some location, at least a part of him should be somewhere do you know every part of your town? No. How about your county? How about your state? Country? Continent? Do you know every corner of the whole world? No, have you been to the moon? What if he set up office on the other side? The dark side of the moon. Been to the sun, 93 million miles away. Do you know how many suns there are in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy? 100 billion. Been to any of them? How many galaxies are there that the astronomers have guesstimated? 125 billion. Look, even if you went to 99% of the universe, you will still have 1 billion galaxies still to go looking for that God. 
So now tell me, is it reasonable to say there is no God in existence? It is not reasonable. Furthermore, if I can walk, don't you think that God also can walk? Sure he can. So if I went to Canada looking for him, he would have gone to India. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For anyone to say there is no God, you should be familiar with every nook and corner of the universe at the same time. That is called omnipresence, that is called omniscience, and those are the attributes we give to God. So to say there is no God, you must have the attributes of God or become a God yourself. And then say you're not in existence. <laughs> there, the tangled knot is evident. There are no arguments for that column. Number two, uh, oops, should I stand here? I guess I should. Against B, and the B is the statement that there is a God in existence. What are the arguments against that? Lack of empirical evidence, empirical, that is direct. See, hear, touch, feel. Presence of pain and suffering, bad design or lack of design, and the difficulty with this idea of creation. Lack of empirical evidence is, it's fair, because I have never touched him or caught him or, you know, sat down with him and had a meal with him. No, I haven't, have you? People say they've heard his voice, but they can't give me any evidence for that. I have not heard. So empirical evidence, yeah, it's not there. But there are many other things I don't have any empirical evidence for, but I believe it's there, and I, I think it's there. Everybody else thinks it's there. My brain, for instance. Have you seen your own brain? No, but it's there, I hope. <laughs> Almost all of scientific information is deduction, not empirical. So it's an argument, but not exactly a very strong argument. Number two is pain and suffering. That's a tough one. So we're going to look at that in a little bit, a little detail, just a little bit later. It is very difficult, but we must approach it as an inquirer, okay? Not as a believer, not as an unbeliever. Bad design, lack of design, it's true. Why did so-and-so, this little child, get leukemia and not that child? I don't know. It seems like kind of random there, just bang, bang, here and there. No explanation. And so we say, if there's no explanation, probably there's no God even in existence. Same as this. So much of pain and suffering, he's out of existence, most probably. Difficulty with creation, this idea of creation does not sit with a rational mind for two reasons. It is not consistent with any observable phenomenon. Otherwise, I've never seen creation take place. I don't see anybody snap his fingers and a whole mountain range suddenly comes up. Or go to the middle of the Sahara Desert and just, you know, call out some rivers and lakes and just fill up the place. Never seen that. Number two, I, it is not in conformity with any scientific law. What is the explanation behind creation? There is no rational explanation. And therefore, it's difficult to accept this idea of creation. Creatio ex nihilo. Creation, getting something out of nothing. Whoever heard of that? So it's difficult for the rational mind. But if it is not creation, then what is it? And we will see that the other side is exactly the same. There is no difference in the, in the approach or in the explanations that we have watched later on. Pain is the big problem, so we're going to go quickly through that, okay? Now, I do not 
propose to give an explanation. It's too big a topic. I am too small. But I did look at it in a narrow way. In other words, the, the claim here is there is an almighty God in existence and there is pain and suffering and therefore he is non-existent. That's all I'm going to look at. Number one, is there a problem? Either he is not good or else he is not almighty. That is from a Greek philosopher of yesteryears. Is he, God, willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Tough question. I want to remember that question. Whence is this evil then? Is it a critical question? The problem of evil is one of the most crucial protests raised by unbelievers against the fact of God. Evil constitutes the biggest single argument against the existence of an almighty loving God. Is it a universal question? It's a problem with no theist can avoid and no honest thinker will even try to avoid. Indeed, every philosophical theory has to deal with it in some way. These are pressing questions which every reflective and sensitive mind frequently ponders. So it is a critical, big, universal problem. Nobody escapes it at any given time. So the first question is, is evil and pain real? I'll give you an illustration and then there'll be a question which I will answer at the complete end of the whole seminar, that is tomorrow. And that is the story of this man who lost his son to some kidnappers. And they asked him to pay a ransom. He was poor, but he got all the money he could possibly have and got the money and they said, okay, bring the whole amount. He became a complete pauper because of using up all his resources. Come to such and such place and at the end of the pickup truck is your son. He goes there with, and puts the money in another place where they told him to. Went there to the pickup truck and the back of the pickup truck is the mangled body of his son tortured to death. And the little note which says, sorry, wrong identity, we thought he was the millionaire's son. In the depth of his grief, in the bitterness of his soul, this father cried out, where was God when my son was tortured to death? So is evil real? Should I tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, go to sleep tomorrow morning, you'll be okay? How, how awful would that be? Evil is real. The answer to that question was given by a person who was standing next to him. And I would like to give you that answer at the end of the whole seminar. And if I do forget it, please remind me, okay? Because he asked, where was God when my son was tortured to death? There's a person who made a response. Evil and pain are real. This is what makes the question real. Otherwise, there's no question at all. On the other side is another question. And therefore, you know, let me quote here Stendhal who said, God's only excuse is that he does not exist. Steve Kumar mentioned this. According to Bertrand Russell, I had mentioned him earlier, no one could sit beside a dying child and still believe in the existence of God. 
On the other side, are pleasure and good also real? How many of you think pleasures are also real? Good is real? Joys are real? Sense of fulfillment is real? Have you seen a little child run to her father and just nestle into the you know, corner of his, of his neck there and just completely at peace with herself and with the world? Is that something not beautiful? Okay, if, 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 there's only, if there's evil that points to a conclusion that there's no God in existence, then what does all the joys, the exquisite pleasures point to? Why is that not causing the same question? Whence this good? Why is there only a question, whence this evil? Are you with me? Yeah. Whence this good? So, good and pleasure are real. And if evil is real and points to non-existence of God, then joys and pleasures are also real and points to the existence of God. At best, they cancel out each other. A contradiction does not give us the liberty to throw out both possibilities. Suppose you have pickpocketed and came and told me you were, and we found two guys out there. Mr. A said, no, Mr. B did it. And Mr. B said, no, not me, Mr. A. And I, as the police officer, told you, well, there's a big contradiction here. Mr. A and Mr. B are at loggerheads. I say we settle the problem by saying that nobody was even pickpocketed. Yeah, a contradiction does not give us the liberty to throw out both possibilities. Both good and evil need an explanation. So if you want to look at only one side, you're becoming one-sided. And that is predetermined and biased. That's not fair. We are inquirers, aren't we? So we've got to look at both. Here are some ways in looking at it. Number one, what are the possibilities when you have both? God is evil. Then there's a contradiction between in, in when we see good in the world. God is good, and then we see a contradiction because there's a lot of evil in the world. God is both good and evil, we find that only in mythological writings. And then this fourth one, which they say is the conclusion, God is non-existent, and we cannot explain the origins of good and evil then. There is no explanation. Explanation two, if evil suggests the absence of God, good should suggest the presence of God. Now, here's the catch. That which suggests a presence defines the overall picture. Suppose we go to a jungle, and we look at one part of the jungle, and there are no footprints at all. So we make a conclusion, there's no lion here. But in the other part of the jungle, there are footprints, and we can make a conclusion, there might be a lion here. In the whole jungle, is the lion absent or present? present. Are you with me? When there are both evidences, evidences for absence and evidences for presence, the evidences for presence defines the overall picture. If a vase or a vase or a jug is broken, you can point to the jagged edge and say there's no design here. So maybe there's no jug. But the part just next to it has a design still left. And so we have to call it a jug, broken all right, but still a jug. Are you with me? So it is the design, the evidence for the presence that defines the overall picture. Don't let anybody fool you and say they are both the same and so we don't know what to do. No. 
if there is even one little evidence for that takes the precedence you check it out in your own life and you'll see that's true explanation three the declaration of atheism so you know because they couldn't figure out or they would get caught if we had both evil and good in existence this is what they say there is at bottom no design no purpose no evil and no good nothing but blind pitiless indifference no evil I thought that was the most crucial argument so you had that as the most crucial argument and when you finish the argument you just toss it off you climb a main branch sit on the perch and then chop the branch itself what happens to the perch if you chop off the existence of evil you chop off your greatest argument against that against for or your statement that says that there's no God in existence so you can't have your cake and eat it either there is evil which you say points to no God in which case you'll have to look at good which points to God or you knock everything off and what does that mean let's look at that if there's no evil and no good what does it really mean we're going to look at it just a little bit here no evil means there is nothing that is unacceptable and therefore that's everything that's acceptable and that's for everything is good and at the same time you are saying there is no good which means there's nothing that's acceptable so everything is unacceptable so everything is bad so if you say both no evil and no good all these statements must apply simultaneously at all times under all circumstances in all places so what is are you trying to say what is the real claim not even nothing I borrowed that phrase from a Nobel laureate his name is Steven Weinberg who wrote the book dreams of a final theory but he was a physicist he was describing conservatives who said there were there was a reference point and liberals who were like this who said there's no reference point no evil no good and he said at least the conservatives stand for something you can argue with them you can fight with them you can disagree with them in fact he said I ha I disagree with some of the views that these conservatives hold the liberals who say there's no good and no evil nothing you can't even fight with them because they are not even wrong so I borrowed that what is the real claim here no evil and no good it's not even nothing atheism then in at that point is not a claim it is the absence of a claim or a claim that there is no claim to make it is not a stand it is the absence of a stand or a stand that there is no stand to take it is not a philosophy it is the absence of a philosophy or a philosophy that there is no philosophy to hold on to are you with me I'm not making this up you see what they said and analyze it you'll come to that there is no other way of looking at it it is the absence of a stand or a philosophy and an absence has no grounds to comment on a presence an absence does not even know the difference between presence and absence it is a non-statement pretending to be a statement and therefore is doubly false not even nothing that is the philosophical truth of it okay now let's see if it stands to practical reasoning 
Nothing but, you remember that part of the statement? Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Nothing but is a absolute statement. Nothing but. I see nothing but people here, that means I don't see any animals. <laughs> if I see one animal here, I can't say nothing but, nothing but humans, right? Nothing but is an absolute. It can allow for no exception whatsoever. Even if one exception is found, the statement becomes false. Now it said there's three things. There's nothing must blind, pitiless indifference. Nothing must blindness, pitilessness, and nothing but indifference. Is that true in life? Yeah. Is blindness universal? No. It's not the question of whether blindness is universal. <laughs> the author of that statement himself had to have sight to pen those words. Even if you use metaphorically, he would have had to. It's absolutely imperative that he be able to see. Otherwise, how does he know there's blindness there? So the very statement is false. Number two, complete lack of compassion in this whole existence of ours. What, what is it that flows out of a mother towards her infant and baby? Come on. Compassion rules us. We can deny it. And we can run away from it, but it is there in our lives. Number three is total indifference. That's impossible. The very fact that you all came and sat here showed that you were considerate regarding the time in which this seminar would begin, right? All three, <laughs> sight, pity, and consideration are part of the very fabric of our existence. You don't have to look here and there to find out if that statement is wrong or right. It is completely false. The atheistic declaration cannot stand either a theoretical scrutiny or practical observation. It is therefore baseless and false. If there's any question, you can just raise your hand. We may not answer it right away, but at least we'll know there's a question, okay? Because some of these things are philosophical, especially to begin with, we do have to settle out some things. When we go to the religions themselves, there's a lot of quotation, but now philosophy and something that that we can um, grapple with. So here's the options. Bad God, there's a contradiction. Usually nobody bothers about that statement. Nobody bothers about this. We knock this off because this does not explain good and evil. So it can't be an explanation that God is non-existent. A philosophy itself that is really non-existent cannot deal with an existence of anything else. We are left with only this. A good God in which there is a contradiction because we say he's almighty also. So proposal four. It's a theistic proposal. God is ultimate reference point. And atheism does not have a counter proposal except by default. And the default is that instead of God being the ultimate reference point, the individual is the ultimate reference point. But the individual cannot be an ultimate reference point because there are so many individuals. So you can't use the word ultimate. So if you say that the individual becomes the reference point, there is no ultimate reference point, and therefore that statement, there is no good or no evil, and you are gone with that, because the statement is saying not even nothing. Are you with me? All right. Number five, the contradiction should be addressed. There is a contradiction, and it's a painful, awful, distressing con contradiction. It requires an existence of the supernatural. That was the contradiction. Are you with me? We have a contradiction because we are saying that there's a God in existence and this God is almighty, loving, wise. At the same time, there's so much suffering. 
So the contradiction requires the existence of God. If there's no God, there's no contradiction, you can walk away. You don't have to have any explanation. Now, here are four statements. I am not proposing to answer it, but I am suggesting that if there is that existence of the supernatural where God resides, then let's try to look at it from that angle. We don't know what it exactly is, but we can try. Number one here, evil was permitted in God's wisdom, not our wisdom, in his wisdom. And this wisdom withheld the reason from us for a very good reason. We don't know the reason, but his wisdom is bigger and higher and greater than ours. Number two, God's love cannot but allow freedom of choice. That which is automated or that which is coerced is not love. And in love there must be a freedom to not love. And therefore the freedom of choice, if it is, should be real, should allow a choice to be made on the other side as well. You can use your choice, you can misuse the choice, you can abuse the choice too. Humanity misused that and brought in the principle that would be self-destructive, which is evil. Three, evil is only temporary. God will later destroy it completely, and in that he will display his omnipotence. <laughs> Number four, eternity then. Remember, we are talking about a God who lives in the other dimension, the dimension of eternity. Then in that eternity, there is a description called heaven. And in that, there's a concept within which God could more than compensate us for the evil and sufferings we experience. 80 years here, 90 years, 100 years here, I've got a million years waiting for you out there. And in that time, I'll give you such bliss and pleasure that you'll completely forget what was here. I agree, it sounds like a pie in the sky. It does. But it has to sound like that because it's coming from there. It is not in our existence. The presence of evil could be the evidence that God is loving and allowed freedom of choice. The final destruction of evil could be evidence that he is all-powerful. Eternity will be grand enough to compensate for every evil and suffering we will ever experience. The contradiction, therefore, from that angle is only apparent. The ultimate state could show the perfect harmony between the love and the power of God. I'm not answering it. I'm just suggesting that if you look at it reasonably, from that angle, there could be perfect harmony. If God does not exist, there is no possible explanation of either good or evil, and none is needed. If God exists, eternity allows for an explanation that is consistent with his character and can lift our souls from aimlessness to a vibrant, hopeful life. There has never been an atheistic proposal that has ever shifted a would-be suicide away from his aim of committing suicide. I am an ER doc, so I've seen that. I've also seen on the other side a would-be suicide turn around when he realized that there could be a God in existence who has his destiny in his hand. It's possible. Bring him out from there. Return him to society, to a beautiful life that he had missed all along. Now let's go to option B. God is existent. For it are three, actually four, no, three here and two over here. 
Let's go through them one by one. Circumstantial, what is circumstantial? It's a pointer, it's not a proof, it's just a pointer to in that direction. So what's the circumstantial evidence? In the number. Aren't we, time up? Oh, what's the time, somebody tell me? 10.20, how many more minutes do we have? 10 minutes, okay, let's quickly go through this. If somebody told me there was a little cow with a head on this side of the body and a head on that side of the body as well, I'll say, yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> if 20 people tell me, I said, yeah, did you see it yourself? If 500 people tell me, I'll say, ooh, ooh, there might be a possibility. If a million people tell me they saw a cow with a head on this side and a head on that side, then my complete unbelief must shift out to there being at least a possibility. Billions believe in God, and they're willing to testify. Therefore, as an inquirer, we must say, okay, there might be a possibility. Number two, deep in the human psyche, our history goes back about 5,000 years of written history that we know of. We have never had even one generation in which the idea of God has been wiped off completely. So if an idea has been around for about 10 years, it should be okay, something that's possible. If it's been a hundred years that's been going on, if it has been in the minds of billions of people for thousands of years, it should become at least circumstantial evidence that there's something going on here. Presence of design and purpose, yes, there is non-design, but there's also design. Tremendous, complex, intricate design all around us. So if non-design should point to no God in existence, what does design point to? See, the argument should be fair on both sides. Number three, three two is the anthropic principle. Anthropos is human. It is the factors that contribute to and sustain human life on the planet Earth. There are many, many of them. I'll just point out a few, two types there are. One is the maintenance of life and the other is conditions for research. Let's go to just one of each. Maintenance of life. Do you know that the expansion rate of the universe is fine-tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion? Have you tried to open a combination lock? I've got, you know, my briefcase, three combinations. How many combinations will open that? Only one out of 999 if there are three, right? Suppose we have a combination of a million numbers and we need to open that suitcase and we need to open about 10 suitcases in a row, only then I will get the treasure in the 10th. And if I go to this first one and find everything exactly set to open it, and I go to the second one, exactly every number of the one million numbers is exactly at the right place and that suitcase also flips open and I go to the third and the fourth and the fifth. Tell me, do you think that you'll start thinking that it happened by itself? No. Out of these trillions and trillions and trillions of options, only one option will, will allow life. A little faster or a little slower, we could not have a universe that would be capable of supporting life. I will leave some of the others because of lack of time. If you, like I said, it's in the book, all of them are there. We'll go on. 
It's only in the very inner edge of the circumstellar habitable zone. That means the distance from the sun. We are at the exact distance from the sun where we have enough carbon dioxide, low enough carbon dioxide, and high enough oxygen to sustain complex animal life. That's where we are. It's not like uh, I'd like to sit in this chair and tomorrow morning I'd like to sit in that chair. You can't do that in the galaxy. Where you're placed, you stay. And this happens to be the safest place in the whole galaxy. It also happens to be the safest place in the distance from the sun. Who put us there? Over the past 30 years or so, scientists have discovered that just about everything about the basic structure of the universe is balanced on a razor's edge for life to exist. Conditions for research, I think we will leave that out. Here we go, logical analysis. Logic means there are some facts that are universally accepted, and on that you use some reasoning. Here's one argument. It's called the Kalam argument or the, written by Al-Ghazli, who said, whatever begins has to have a cause. It's three very simple steps. The universe had a beginning, the universe has to have a cause. Simple. Nobody has yet beaten that argument, do you know that? There was a time ago when people said the universe was everlasting. And so you didn't have an argument, but today, what, you know what they call the beginning of the universe? A big bang. So it had a beginning. Anything that has a beginning has to have a cause. This universe had a beginning, the universe has to have a cause. I switched it around. We won't go through the pan argument on that. Yeah, we'll leave that out. Well, we'll do it. Science says that all that's in existence are these four. Matter, energy, time, and space. That's it. There's nothing supernatural, no God, no miracles, nothing. Here's the argument. Can I say that this pointer is the cause of the pointer? No. Can I say that the table, desk, the wooden desk is the cause of the wooden desk? No. Can I say that the wood is the cause of the desk? No. Can I say the carpenter might be the cause of that desk? Yes. But the carpenter is distinct from the material. That's what he is saying, Al-Ghazli. The cause has to be different. The cause of an end product is transcendent to our lives outside it. What is the cause of this pointer? The maker of the pointer, not the pointer. What is the cause then of matter, energy, time and space? You can't look inside matter, energy, time and space. The cause must be outside, therefore the cause must be supernatural. It's as simple as that. There, if this cause really is outside, then this cause has at least two, two characteristics. Number one, look at matter in the universe. Absolutely complex, precise and intricate. Therefore, if there's a cause for such matter, then the cause must be brainy, genius, a super genius, an intellect that's awesome. In fact, this is what Albert Einstein said about the cause. He said that he was in rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. That's awesome brain power. Now that number two, we know now from Einstein's theory of relativity that matter and energy are interchangeable. Can you imagine the energy that's in the universe? 
take all the matter and make it into energy, 125 billion galaxies of energy, then if the cause is the cause of that energy, he must at least have that much energy. Not only must he have that much energy to supply the mightiest of clusters of galaxies, he must have it so fine-tuned that he could also deal with the energy particles that are subatomic, like the baryons and the mesons and the hyperons, whose half-life is just 100 millionth of a second. He should be able to deal with that and deal with the mightiest galaxies. So, and brilliant intellect with awesome power, could that be God? Nothing to preclude that. There's nothing that can say no to that. Number four is the formation of granite. We'll finish with this and then get, and have a break. Granite is a form of rock. It forms kind of the crust of the earth. Do you know nobody has yet really theorized how granite was formed correctly? They have a theory of, you know, material, pressure, temperature. But when you take the material and put it under that pressure and the temperature, it does not form granite. Nobody has yet been able to form granite. That's number one. Number two, radioactive isotopes are substances that give off radiation, right? Now when they give off radiation, they themselves become less and less in amount. So radioactive substances have what is known as half-lives. How long will it take for that mass when it gives off the radiation to become half its amount? The radioisotope of uranium-238 is 4.53 billion years. There's one radioisotope that I'm going to talk about. It's polonium-218. It's a primordial radioisotope. In other words, there's no precursor to it. Nothing brought it to its existence. It was there. One of the first radioisotopes. Its half-life is three minutes. How much? Three minutes. three minutes. In that three minutes, when it gives off its radiation, if it is inside a rock, it will form a circle like a halo. Now here's the question. Suppose I want to trap a bubble in a glass of water, making that water into ice. I want to trap the bubble. The bubble will last only three minutes. How long should it take to form the ice to trap that bubble? Three minutes or less. Are you with me? If the bubble is going to only last for three minutes and you want to catch it, the water must turn to ice within three minutes. An exceedingly large number of polonium halos are embedded in granites all around the world. Distinctly implies that our Earth was formed in a very short time, like say three minutes. Are you with me? There is a booth at the back there called Orion. Just go and see there, the halos thing is talked about over there. I met Dr. Robert Gentry myself uh, in, in, uh, uh, in April of last year. And I asked him, has anybody challenged you? This is what he said, or this is what he's written down. We have repeatedly challenged the academy to publicly explain where the polonium halo evidence for creation has ever been scientifically invalidated. For over 15 years, they have refused to even try. <laughs> it has been published in journals, though. In scientific journals, it's there. It's an astounding piece of information that granite was not formed in a hundred million years. It was formed within three minutes and five hours. That's it. 
The polonium halos has not yet been refuted. So that is a scientific piece of evidence on which we can stand and say scientific evidence for instant creation. Let's take a break. Did you say three minutes and five hours or three minutes and five seconds? Three minutes to five hours. Three minutes is half-life, five hours is a full life. Oh, okay. That's what I meant. Okay, we'll take a break and 15 minutes later I think we're supposed to reconvene. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.